0: Please be seated then. Now,
1: would you oh, like lovely.
0: some tea with your grapes, yes, Mr. Henry? Oh, yes, lovely.
1: It's so nice. Well, we'd like you. to make you feel welcome. Thank man. you. There well, we I do feel are. welcome because the people on the barrier are always African people here. So, <laughs> yeah, Lenny, you can go straight in, back where you want to. <laughs> so, so, it's very nice. Well, quite. Is there any milk?
0: There is. Oh, just got to pick me to it. Now, mm-hmm. I was thinking, ladies and gentlemen, you, you look at the careers of performers. The ones that seem to survive the longest are the ones who show boldness in going from one bit of show business to another, crossing barriers and proving themselves in a completely different sphere. And this, of course, has happened to Mr. Lenny Henry, a long-established comedy favorite, now reinvented himself as classical Shakespearean actor. And all this came as a result of a challenge. And I don't suppose even you, Lenny, could have visualized you ending up Playing Othello in the West End no. and winning an Evening Standard Best Newcomer Award, which since you'd been in showbiz since you were in
1: your nappies, must have been a bit kind of odd. <laughs> it was weird um, because I, I, I was 50 when I got the Best Newcomer Award, and uh, <laughs> I thought I'd up and come, but obviously not. <laughs> um, but it was it was a really um, lovely uh, validation because I'd, I'd, I'd always wanted to act. Um, but never really been brave enough to do theatre, and uh, because I'd done this th- uh, radio show for Radio Four mm. about my allergy to Shakespeare, because um, I just didn't get it, you know. Uh, they threw Romeo and Juliet at us at school when we were in the fourth year and said read it out, and we we didn't know whether it was a play or what. We just read it out, and it just sounded crap. Um, and then we had a bit of a little mini revelation when we went to see Zeffirelli's um, Romeo and Juliet, which was beautiful and lyrical and extraordinarily. Um, super screen, uh, hugely wonderful. Um, but after that, we just lost interest in Shakespeare. And um, I just didn't think it was, for me, you know, it, just, it was guys in very tight tights with cabbages down the front, <laughs> speaking in a posh accent. And as Richard Price said, that, talking like, how fee they thaw they thither, thank myself unthetherful. Um, and I, I just didn't think it was for me, because I was working class, and I was of Jamaican parentage, and Shakespeare just didn't seem to be for people like me. And then when I did, um, uh, I did a BA with the Open University, um, which took six years, and um, <laughs> I just we had to do a bit of Shakespeare every year, and I found myself slightly having a hierarchy of Shakespeare plays that I liked. And um, I slightly started to think, oh, well, I like that one. Oh, I'm not sure about that one. Oh, that's quite good. Oh, I love I love that one. Oh, I listened to that on the way home. And I was listening to lots of plays to and from work. So you could listen to part one on the way into London and part two on the way out. So I listened to lots of plays like this. And I started to get an idea of how the language worked. And it was a fantastic experience. And then I saw a, <laughs> then I saw a tape of James Earl Jones doing um, King Lear in the park in New York. I don't know if you've seen it. But it's a, it's a fantastic testament to um, how Shakespeare penetrates to even uh, an urban working class audience. Because the park was packed with black, white, Hispanic people. And every time James Earl Jones got to the end of a long speech, they went, Woo! Right on, brother man. You remember that shit. That's a long speech. <laughs> I love that you got a long memory like that. And I just thought this is great Shakespeare can actually be something that people can whoop and holler and cheer and I guess it ties in with um, The way it was first performed you know where the audience stood up in the rain and the cold and Joined in with with the actors to be or not to be yeah, that's what you say pal <laughs> um, And I, I think that um, it's got the potential for that and uh, I'm enjoying myself ever so much here, and I, I enjoy doing Othello as well, so uh, it's almost like having a, a, a second or third wind for me, so... Um, ...Gods be praised. Now,
0: it was the great Barry Rutter who was sort of instrumental in this. Barry, some of you might remember, of this parish. He was in Guys and Girls here and other productions. But he set up a company called Northern Broadside. That's
1: right. And tell
0: us, what, what's the sort of manifesto of Northern Broadside?
1: Well, um, I, I, I always recognised Barry Rutter because um, there was always a picture of him um, with a false penis on <laughs> in um, the Oxyrhynchus and the Trackers, or something. Right,
0: like the Trackers and
1: Oxyrhynchus, yeah. And um, he had a very big false penis on, <laughs> and it caused quite a ruckus here, I remember. And it was in Guys and Dolls, and I saw that here, and he was fantastic in it. And um, Barry was here for ten years, but then he then he wanted to set up his own theatre company up north because he's from Hull, and his dad was a trawlerman, and um, he wanted to do plays and he wanted to perform Shakespeare in a dialect that. People from Hull and Halifax and uh, Bradford and Preston and Liverpool and North Wales could understand and relate to. And so um, he, I think he had to do Richard III because Brian Glover uh, passed away. And, uh, and that would have been brilliant. But he actually went on and did it. And uh, it was, uh, what was it, you know, now is the winter of our discontent, Thanos. It was very. Uh, <laughs> But, but he, when I did the fellow, um, it was fantastic to work with actors of all different stripes, all different accents, who put their own spin on, on the dialects. And um, it means that although I think actors should kind of learn to speak a sort of standard English, because some plays demand that, it's, it's quite nice to be able to do things in your own accent. It kind of puts a stamp on the text. Um, and Barry is a big fan of that, and so when he came to see Comedy of Errors, he was really pleased to see actors speaking in uh, kind of Hispanic and uh, Nigerian and Essex. It's, it's quite a good mixture of, it's quite a babel of voices. Um, but that's what Barry's about. He's about speaking in your own dialect and making the text sound true. And I spoke to him on the phone for this um, Shakespeare documentary on Radio 4. And he did O for a Muse of Fire from Henry V and it just rocked and rolled. It was percussive. It was like sort of Jay-Z was from Bradford or something, he just bam, 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 and he hit every rhyme and every syllable and every consonant, and it sounded alive. And um, I was very excited by it, and, he, and on, on the next program, Barry came down to Radio 4, to Broadcasting House, and we, we, uh, we did um, the last speech, a fellow's last speech, you know, soft you a word or two before you go. I have done the state some service, and they note no more of that, we did that. But we did it over and over and over again, and um, it got better, <laughs> you know, because I was reading it, you know, and a soft you a word or two before you, keep it down in your boots, keep it down in your boots, soft you a word, try and do it, you know, don't do it African, but you know, try something that's not you, you know, soft you a word, yeah, try and do it a bit gentler, soft you, a bit louder, soft, soft you, <laughs> so it just went on and on and on all morning, and at the end of it, I was very I was somehow moved by it, and I said to him, "Do you think I could do this?" And um, apparently, when a six-foot black man says that to you, and you're four-foot and from Hull, you say yes. <laughs> <laughs> he said, all right, of course you can walk in there, right? Of course you can do it. <laughs> and it was just a matter of sorting out the dates and the diaries because we're all busy. And um, Suddenly, I was at West Yorkshire Playhouse looking at this huge <laughs> picture of myself. As I walked down the hedgerow, you know, in Leeds, I was looking at this big bit, fellow and I am going, not bloody yet, it isn't. <laughs> um, but it was extraordinary. I had a cork up my bum all the way through previews, um, and it was just, it was like a whirlwind. I don't remember the opening mm-hmm. night at all. Um, I think I'd taken a lot of ibuprofen. <laughs> but I managed to get through the first night, and then after that, it was... it it just seemed to improve by little degrees. Um, Because I'd never done it before and it it just kept getting better and I was really thankful for that.
0: I mean, do you think, because I'm sort of comparing it to the fact that you went on television when you were a a teenage lad. Sixteen. Sixteen. It's the same kind of sort of amazing boy who knows no fear idea to Try Othello is your first Shakespearean oh, no. role, which not I think was not difficult. even a spear carrier, not no. even a my liege,
1: <laughs> not, <laughs> not even that. The queen you know. comes
0: on her pace, that sort of thing, you know. No,
1: um, I mean I would have. I did say to him, Could, sh- should we do something else that's not quite so? He mm-hmm. said, Oh, do it should be all right. <laughs> 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 Barry is extraordinary in the room, in the rehearsal room. He literally said to me one day. Walk with your balls, you're a general. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think he meant, you know, sort of, you know... <laughs> I think he meant that, you know. But yes. he, he just says Hang it in it all a sort of dressed up way, very funny.
0: But I was watching your, the show, the, the comedy show, which was on a couple of nights ago, The One Lenny Henry, and you right. talked in the act uh, about how you were kind of visited by your comedy
1: persona very in the middle of Othello. Very difficult to do Othello, um, because it's, it's all serious, you know. And I'm, I, I, love, I, love, I, like, I love comedy, I love anybody who tries to make me laugh, so I'm, I'm a very generous audience, I laugh the loudest when I go and see a comedy show, um, I love watching comedy on the television, and I love performing uh, comedy. Um, and when I was doing Othello, it was a, it was a tr- it's a tragedy, you know, and, and there's, no, there's not a laugh in it for me, so I'm thinking, Christ, what am I going to do, you know? And, I'm, and, and I'd just be in the middle of a speech, and bearing in mind that when you're doing a play, you have to concentrate really hard. It's the most I've ever had to listen to anybody ever in my whole life. Mm-hmm. And so you're listening, 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 tr- acting, trying to be in it, and everything like that. And every so often you do, why aren't they laughing? Shut up! <laughs> <laughs> Shut up It's Shakespeare, they're not supposed to laugh. The like when you do the jokes, you say, "Shut up! I'm trying to concentrate." <laughs> Be in the middle of a big speech, soft you a word or two before you go knife dagger nagger, knife, you know, just, <laughs> just like that. I'm having a bit of trouble. <laughs> no, stop it! Stop it! So I had to really rein myself myself in uh, in Othello, and um, but I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the experience, and I've always liked I, I like actors like you know De Niro and. Uh, Brando, and uh, I love watching you know uh, Adrian Lester and people like that. I watch The Wire and The Sopranos and things. So I like the guys, uh, you know Helen Mirren. I love Helen Mirren, Judy Dench. Guys who kind of make it appear natural, and but they put the work in. You know, whenever you read the biographies of these people, they do the work. So. Um, Performing in Othello was a big step for me, but it was the right thing to do because I just thought I'm never going to be asked to do anything if I don't jump off the cliff, you know. Mm-hmm. So I decided I was going to jump off the cliff. So have you now gone from not
0: liking Shakespeare very much to being you know, a sort of uh, dewy-eyed devotee of him? I mean, have you made that journey, or are you there's still plays which you don't?
1: Think that highly of? Um, well, the comedies are difficult because it's all jokes about your codpiece and stuff, you know. And um, the language is difficult. It's 400 years old, and some of the, some of the language is archaic. And when Dominic was doing this, he, he, he worked from the first folio and he cut a lot of the more obscure dialogue. Um, and we worked on it in a really fantastic way. Uh, with Northern Broadsides, we'd we put it on its feet straight away, because that's how Barry works. You start, you literally, <laughs> I, was, I was really shocked. Got there, I thought, well, there'll be, you know, I'd heard that people, when they're doing a play, they sit around for three weeks and eat biscuits and talk about motivation and, you know, and, and talk about, you know, when they were abused as a child and stuff like that, you know. <laughs> and uh, really think very deeply about what the subject matter is and, you know, meta-theatre and all that kind of stuff. And uh, Barry said, right, we've had the read-through. right, you're standing over there. I was like, fucking slow down! What about my childhood? Never mind that lad, we open in a week's time. <laughs> so, um, so, but this was slightly different. This was a different experience doing this play. Because this is a big stage. I mean, this is huge theatre. And I think it demands, it demands something from the director and the designer and the, the performers that other venues don't demand. You know, I think uh, Dominic understood that with a space like this, you need spectacles. You know, and I've seen Warhorse here and uh, His Dark Materials and things like that. And those shows fill the stage with movement and sets and design and lights. And um, on the first day of rehearsals, uh, Dominic Cook and Bunny Christie, the designer, unveiled this set, but in miniature. And the, all, there's 26 people in the cast. 26! I get pissed off when I'm on my own. But um, fantastic cast, and we're all sitting there. We've just met and everything. And then Bunny... Um, takes the black curtain off the set, and we all went, I promise you, we all went, ooh. <laughs> and then she spun it around and said, and, and, and these two trucks move like this, and we went, ah. <laughs> and they said, and this thing comes down the middle like that, and we literally went, <gasps> It was like Disney, but for actors. Oh. And the, so the set moves, and it rocks, and it rolls, and it's on pivots, and it's on a track, and there's computery stuff that works sometimes. And there's, <laughs> and there's blokes walking around going, right, they what's going? On? Football's on in a minute. Hang on a minute, I'm doing a job of work here. Um, and it's fantastic. And um, but we didn't realise that we were going to get the set in the rehearsal room. And we <laughs> walked into rehearsal room three, which is huge. And um, they'd put a kind of a you know when you make a suit and they make a toile first, yeah? To kind of see what the suit might look like, but in a slightly cheaper material. Well, they made this, this set sort of out of balsa wood and stuff and sticky-back plastic. And um, no, it was actually a big wooden facsimile of the set. And we got to rehearse in the kind of dimensions of the show, so that was brilliant. Um, and then pretty soon we got to walk on, on the set here and... Uh, and we realized that it wasn't like the set downstairs, <laughs> it was heavier. And um, it's made of steel, and there's sharp bits. And uh, the set is actually trying to eat you. <laughs> so, you so, so we did a lot of work with movement at the beginning. Uh, lots of dancing with this uh, uh, movement coordinator called An Yi, who's very hardcore. Sort of like boot camp, but five foot tall. And uh, Chinese-American, and uh, who, uh, was extraordinary in the way she taught us all to um, relate to each other as, as people. I mean, it sounds a bit wanky, but we, we sort of learned how to peripherally know where we were on stage, know who's there, who's there. and We, we, we also got much fitter. We did lots of dancing. And, it was, uh, and we got to know each other. You know, by the end of the first week, I'd rolled around on the floor and sweated on a big bloke. And I thought, that's a good day. That's a good, <laughs> week's, work. That's a good week's work for me. I've sweated on a very big bo- bloke and been very intimate with him. And it was lovely. It was a very moving moment. <laughs> uh, we're we'll very
0: happy together. Uh, we're, we're, Adrian,
1: Adrian Hood and I are very happy together. <laughs> and, um, but every, we got to massage. each mm-hmm. This is going to sound kinky. <laughs> We had to massage each other every day, and you had to pick somebody different every day, and it was very, um, <laughs> it was, it was lovely. And, um, <laughs> and, uh, but by the end of the first week, we all knew each other's names, and we'd started to learn about how to, how to move on this set. And I'm quite a big bloke, I'm quite a big, glumfy bloke, and um, I had to learn how to do stage, never, never done a stage fight before, and Dominic sort of promised, but that by the end of this experience, I'd, I'd have learnt a new thing. In fellow, I learned how to throw a knife, and in this, with the help of this fantastic cast, I, I, you know we've been taught how to move and also to do this sort of weird fake fighting. And I get to work with Daniel Poyser and uh, Lucy Massamati and um, Grace and uh, Claire and Michelle and everybody. And they are such a giving company um, that you actually feel safe doing dangerous stuff. I mean, because stage fighting, you could get killed, you know, in a stage fight. I mean, it sounds weird, but you're, you're, within, a, you're within that much of people's faces and chests and heads and stuff. So you have to be careful. Um, even putting a custard pie in somebody's faces could be potentially dangerous. I was um, in, on top of the steps doing Othello, and one of the actors, they, you know, because stage fights are very rehearsed. You go, well, I'm going this like this, and then I'm going to swing round to here, and then you're going to hold my head down there like that, and then I'm going to roll. and you rehearse it every day because you don't want to get it wrong. And there was a moment um, in this fantastic sword fight in Othello where Stan, (laughs) Stan who was playing um, Casio, did a flourish, and he'd never done a flourish before in the show, (laughs) he did a flourish with the sword as if to go, ha, I am a master swordsman. Unfortunately, he did the flourish and let go of the sword (laughs) and it flew point first into the audience and we all went, (gasps) and I had to come down the stairs and go, oh, what is this noise? And as I came down, oh, what is it? (laughs) Is everybody all right? (laughs) And they all went, yeah, carry on. And there was this sword between this woman and this old man going (laughs) (laughs) ba-doing. So you you can't, no flourishes, and when you do a stage fight, you have to set it and not improvise in the midst of the show. You also, because I'm quite excitable, as you can imagine, (laughs) sort of like having a puppy on crack (laughs) in a show with you, but I'm quite excitable. So when they said you're going to do a stage fight, the first few times I got very excited and did it slightly too fast. And when you do things too fast, you slightly stop thinking, and uh, that's not good. So I I kind of I've had to learn to take a deep breath before each fight and concentrate on the moves. But it's lovely. It's kind of like strictly, but with weapons. Yeah.
0: I mean, how difficult is it to remain in character? Because your instinct, you know, all your professional career hitherto has largely been in communicating directly with an audience Uh as yourself. So, has there been any sort of tension, or have you managed to get into the sort of character etiquette quite easily now? What was
1: good? What was wonderful with this is that Dominic had a big idea about how to set the play. Um, it's in a kind of a, a metropolis that's a bit like London but not London. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he made us think a lot about immigrant culture in London and this idea of trade and money being important. And um, we watched a documentary about Nigerians and Afga- Afghanistanis coming to Britain you know, you know, in the, in the lorry and in the petrol tanker and underneath the train and all that kind of thing. And it was very moving, it was a very moving documentary because some people make it, some people don't, you know. And he put us in the mood uh, with these ideas about immigrant culture and also gangland culture in London. And so we just got a sense of being rooted. And with, with me, the, be- the best characters I've done have been rooted in some kind of reality. I think the ones where it's just a silly voice and a costume don't really... They, they're funny for two minutes, but they're not, you couldn't really do a whole show on them. But um, with six weeks rehearsal, and with lots of thinking, and with guidance, we, we all sort of started to think about, you know, I mean, uh, Claudie and Michelle are, are Luciana and Adriana, and they play them as Essex girls. Chris Jarman is a sort of bit of a cheeky Charlie Cotney. Um, uh, Chris is Dromeo, played by Daniel Poise, who is uh, sort of London. And uh, I'm sort of Nigerian, and so is my Dromeo. So there's a kind of a real, there's a very good urban, ethnic, immigrant flavor to the, and also not posh London in the show. It's very urban, it's very street, it's very London. And um, I think it's not easy, but I think it's the characters are able to come to life with rehearsal, with lots of thinking, and you can get grounded in them if you do the work. And we all, it was amazing. Everybody wanted it to be good, so everybody was doing the work. and It was wonderful to see. We'd all bonded by the end of the first week. You know, once you've massaged somebody's bottom, <laughs> you get real close. And we just, we just wanted it to be good, and so everybody worked really, really hard to make it good. And it was uh, fantastic to experience how a big rehearsal process like that works. There's a lot of people to kind of rehearse, and so some scenes were we had to go off and do stuff, I had to learn lines, so there was lots of line bashing going on. And, uh, but everybody ha- was were doing their bits at different times, and we didn't, you know, we didn't really put it together until we came on the stage and we saw how it all slotted together, really. It was it, it, a fantastic experience, really enjoyable. Um, and sort of an honor, a pleasure to do um, characters like these. They're so, you know, written 400 years ago and getting laughs in the 21st century. It's not bad, you know. Um, so I, I, I have to salute it. And it's, uh, it, the text really holds you. That sounds wanky too. But it, it sort of, once you've got a text like this, you can sort of jump off and do anything, really, because it's so strong. It's 400 years old and it holds you. And it is amazing how well
0: the verse sounds in your Nigerian accent, how it, seems of, how it kind of lends itself so well to it. That's what one of the things that struck me about well, I think that um,
1: because the because the the Nigerian-ish portion of the show are are speaking this kind of embroidered language, what's interesting is it it almost feels like they're having to they're speaking in a language that's not theirs, so they're having to we break it down for you. So it becomes, I think it becomes clearer because we're foreigners speaking this this language that is new to us. So it becomes very, because that I familiarly sometimes do use you for my fool and chat with you, your sauciness will jest upon my love and make a common of my serious hours. When the sun shines, let foolish nuts make sport, but creep in crannies when he hides his beams. If you will jest with me, know my aspect and fashion your demeanor to my looks, or I will beat you, no, or I will beat this method in your sconce. And um, it just sounds like poetic, somebody trying to speak, get to grips with mm. this language. And um, although the other night I did say, if you will just be normal my aspect, and fashion your demeanor to my looks, or I will sconce your sconce with your sconce. And Lucien Masamati looked at me and went, okay. <laughs> okay, I'm just gonna carry on now with the play, Len. <laughs> I'm doing the play. Do you wanna join in with the play? Well, you can improvise in Shakespeare now, you see, as well. well. you can, can beat it. I, I don't stop so much now. I used to stop. So, is the <laughs> fact going, what now? <laughs> is the fact that you're at the
0: National Theatre on the Olivier stage, does that give you a buzz, then, this, yeah. the, this new departure? I mean, how, how do you see it developing, this uh, phase as a classical actor? Will you do other parts? Will you do other plays of this
1: kind? Well, you've got any work? Well, yes, I've got a few suggestions, if you like. Well, I'd like to to do more. Mm -hmm. I mean, working with this company is great. We sort of want to hire ourselves out as a company for hire. (laughs) Um, But um, I I, I love working here. When you get a laugh in this room, it sort of tickles you in places that Mm. you shouldn't be tickled, really. Have they sort of... have, Have the posh actors, have they
0: welcomed you with open arms?
1: Well, they're not really that posh. It's great, you know see a Simon Russell Beale walking around in his pants, it's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> He's two dressing grooms down for me and he, chat, yeah. he chats and Tony Scherzi mm-hmm. and him. Uh, it's, it's sort of like being at the BBC in the late 70s. Because in the canteen, you know, people who walk around in costume, they shouldn't. But they mm-hmm. come in and they grab a quick cake and, yeah. you know, <laughs> they've got costumes on. And um, it's lovely, you know, there's no dialects or anything, but it's, it's a bit like the BBC. Mm-hmm. And um, I like that. I like the idea of uh, of there being a building where there's lots of things going on. There's lots of creativity going on. And it's a positive thing. Creativity is a positive vibe. It's a Mm. positive energy. And um, certainly in this company, you know, everybody wants the show to be great. Everybody responds to the audience. And there's a real feeling. Dominic is really plugged into the show. He comes back. He watches the show. We get notes quite constantly. And um, he, he just makes us... Try different things, you know. We 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 don't get time to get set in our ways. Plus, we're in rep now. Yeah. So we do it for nine nine shows, and then we have a, you know a week off, and then we come back and go. Um, but it's 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 really exciting. And I, 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 of course, I want to do more theatre. Um, I'd like to do something new. I'd like to do a contemporary play. Um, but um, I definitely think I'm going to do more Shakespeare.
0: But you'll go back to the comedy, the stand-up as well. You haven't given that up, have no, 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 you? no, no, no.
1: No, no, I can't give up comedy. No, quite. Pay for my mom's house. (laughs) God bless it. No, no. Well, I I mean, uh, seriously though, I I do see uh, being stand-up comedy from the age of 16 as being a job, and I was able to help my family. And I've got a big extended family, who, um, who, uh, (laughs) one of my brothers rings up and says, Len, I need 857 pounds 99 pence. And uh, you know, I, I've got a big extended family, and I try and I've tried to help them over the last 36 years, and help you know people with university and stuff like that. And um, I, uh, my mom was very sick for the last seven years of her life, and I paid for her care. Mm. And uh, the stand-up helped to do that, and it's it's well paid, and and uh, I I like doing it, and I like the vibe with the audience. I enjoy it, but actually. After doing it for 35 years, I was was definitely thinking there's got to be something, Mm -hmm. what is the next stage now? Um, And, um, you know, because once you've realised that you're not Richard Pryor, there's got to be something else. So hopefully, um, I'll be able to develop and grow in this. uh, Will
0: you go back to stand-up feeling different about it, or will you slip it back into the the routine as, you know, easily?
1: I think it's once you've done a play... uh, I think when you go back to doing stand-up, you you want more from it. And I think um, The National is doing work with people like Daniel Kitts, and I think Stuart Lee's been on this stage. Um, I think Mark Watson's been on this stage. And it's really interesting that uh, more and more comedians, particularly with the demands of television and the Edinburgh Festival and stuff, are creating hours or 70-minute shows that have a very strong narrative content. Mm -hmm. And I think um, what working on this play and also on Othello has made me realise is that the audience like a story, they don't, just like, they don't just like going from joke to joke. They actually like something that connects. Mm-hmm. Um, and they like something that has a, a massive climax at the end. And so um, I, I'm trying to... I, I work with directors now when I'm doing stand-up. So I've worked with Hamish McCall and Simon McBurney mm-hmm. and Sam Buntrock. And just in trying to make the, make the stage shows now have a cohesive um, thread running through it. And they're, they're usually about some theme that, I'm, that I care about. The mm-hmm. show I'm doing at the moment I'm, I'm doing an Australian tour in, in June is called Cradle to Raven. it's about my love of music but my inability to play an instrument and, um, and I, actually play, I actually try and play piano in the show and it's sort of usually disastrous um, but it's, um, it's a very heartfelt show and it's sort of a, a kind of elegy for my dad really because um, I, I never really found out what my dad's favourite records were but I can sort of guess. My mum liked country and western and Jim Reeves and gospel music, but there, there were some rock and roll records there, and um, Fats Domino, Blueberry Hill, and I reckon that was my dad's taste. My dad liked New Orleans jazz and he liked Fats Domino, so I do a sort of tribute to him in the show. And um, stand-up is my job and I love it, but um, as far as career is concerned, I think this is the right way to go, and I'm loving it too. So.
0: And you're getting into screenwriting in a big way too, aren't you?
1: Yeah. Tell us about that. Um, well, I did. Um, I've always wanted to write, but I've always been unconfident, because um, when I, I worked to the, at the BBC, Paul Jackson, the producer of Three of a Kind, on the first day of uh, Meet the Writers, um, myself, Tracy Ullman and David Copperfield, not that one, but the one from Doncaster, <laughs> were, invited to come into, were invited to come into a room with all these writers, and they were all pretty much Oxbridge, and they were all white. And so I felt very kind of, um, sort of isolated, and, uh, but you know, I met Kim Fuller, and Kim Fuller's been a kind of traveling companion ever since, and he understands stuff, and he wasn't Oxbridge, he, he went to Reading University, and, uh, but he was cool and he's a very, very smart writer, and there were people like Tony Sarchet, and Andrea Solomons, and Bob Sinfield, and they were very good writers, and I got on very well with them, and, and they're the guys who wrote Delbert Wilkins, and Theophilus P. Wilderbeest and Gotanga, my friends, and all that stuff. Um, and I, but I was very much a part of that, of the creation of that. Um, but I always wanted to write my own stuff, I always felt a bit like I should, I've should i got the energy, I, I just need to glue my ass to the seat. How do you do that? Because apparently that's what writing is. You just have to glue your ass to the seat. And Douglas Adams said stare at the typewriter until blood comes out of your forehead. But that's quite a big jump to make if you've never written before. So I decided to do a, B, a BA. And then I got to the end of that, and I thought, well, that, that hasn't really taught me how to write. Really, it's taught me how to write essays, but it hasn't really taught me about the creativity side of things. So I, I went to Royal Holloway and did an MA in screenwriting. <laughs> Royal right <on> Holloway, bossy. <laughs> uh, with them. Um, the very attractive Sue Clayton and, um, and it's a retreat course so you go away for a week and you have intense mm. classes with the great and the good and then you go away and you, you work on your script ideas and you communicate with each other online and then you meet up again for another week and there's a week in Egham and a week in Bedford Square and a week up north and a week down south and you just over two years you have about six weeks away but you do a lot of the work on your own and it's fantastic it's a fantastic course and By the end of it, I'd written a a treatment for a six-part television series and I'd written a screenplay. And um, since then, uh, the screenplay's been um, taken under the wing of Hilary Bevan Jones, who produced The Boat That Rocked and Love Actually. And um, uh, the the TV treatment got me a commission from Red, uh, Nicholas Schindler's company. And um, also, uh, Revolution Films asked me to write a, a film. Uh, which led to me doing a PhD about sports films. Um, So I wrote a film about basketball in Hackney. And um, I got told this morning that Chris Rock is reading it. Wow. Um, Doesn't mean anything, he might just be going, damn. Some bullshit. <laughs> but, but at least he's reading. Exactly. Read it, you know. Exactly. So um, it's so the writing is the writing is really developed, and I'm really glad of that. That's fantastic. Because you've got to do something with this energy.
0: Yeah. Would you be in any of these films? Have you written them for yourself, or are you happy to hand them over to? No, no, no. What's, direct been, them what's been or? very
1: interesting is that um, I, I haven't wanted to. You know, it's very much a. a, a me writing for someone else, mm-hmm. and also with me writing with the idea that I might direct something. Yeah. And um, the film that Hilary Bevan Jones mm-hmm. uh, hopes to produce is something that I might direct. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's about um, death and Wolverhampton. Um, Two concepts. Never yeah, together. Yeah, It's right? a good. I think it's a good concept. Uh, <laughs> I just say that in the pitch meetings. Picture the scene, Wolverhampton, and they go, yeah. <laughs> Lots of death. Okay. Um, so uh, it's about Jamaican funeral uh, rites in, Jama- in In Jamaican culture and in a lot of third-world cultures, there's a nine-nights thing that happens, so you know I I noticed my dad died in 1977 and for nine nights people kept showing up at the house with bottles of whiskey and pots of stew You all right, Lynn? Where's Mrs. Henry? And (laughs) they'd walk into the house and slightly take over, and so the whole neighborhood somehow knew that my dad had died and just showed up at the house with food and drink and you know in the kitchen they'd be singing hymns and in the front room they'd be playing Prince Buster records and in the back room they'd be playing dominoes and it was a, it's a kind of funeral rite that means that the deceased never gets a chance to think about um, their loved one because they're too busy cooking and cleaning and kicking people out their house mm. and um, so I've written a film about that and um, I hope it gets commissioned
0: Well it's all very exciting, yeah. fantastic Well, ladies and gentlemen, that, sadly, I must end it. I'm sorry about that. Lenny's got a very important appointment to make in 50 minutes' time, so we mustn't keep him from that. A conversation with Lenny Henry. Everything is premier, including the price, you might say. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in thanking Mr. Lenny
1: Henry.